Good afternoon, Team Kurlak community. Welcome back to another episode of Down the Rabbit Hole on the Russia-Ukraine War. I'm Major Ian Brown, Operations Officer of the Kurlak Center, here again with Dr. Yuval Weber, our Russia SME. So this is going to be kind of a quick hit episode, and uh, um, even though it's quick hit, there's still so much history, like so many things happening that uh, it's just it, it's remarkable how how rapidly events across multiple domains have been happening. And I feel a little dirty saying the word domain right now, but it's out there and I can't take it back. So we're going to get right to it. So um, I guess the first thing to hit on is last time we talked, the major announcement was the mobilization. That was a long time coming. Putin didn't want to do it, finally had to do it because he really had no no choice for a way to, to keep the war going. So we've had about, what, about a week of mobilization now. So how has that gone? What's the opposite of swimmingly? That's basically how it's gone. Mill, drowning with a millstone around your neck? I don't know. Yeah, so particularly we have, um, at this point, according to um, the FSB, FSB is the successor agency to the KGB. And just to give you a sense of like how Russia works, the FSB is also the one in charge of like border troops and border security. So domestic regime security is tied to protection of the actual defense, the actual territory of the country. Um, make of that what you will. Um, in data that they released uh, two days ago, Already 261,000 people had left the Russian uh, Russian Federation uh, within a week. So obviously, these are numbers that are produced by the mobilization. They can't norm they can't be explained away by sort of normal travel to and fro. Um, so that was again uh, data of a couple of days ago. So perhaps by this point, um, Russia will have achieved its goal of mobilizing 300,000 people to have left the country in order to avoid this mobilization. Um, we also know that as of the reporting today, uh, the Russian military is sending um, basically military commissariats to the border crossings in order to try and uh, serve these conscription summons, these uh, subpoenas in a, in a sense, to the people who are act actively trying to flee the country. Um, something to note for basically Russia's influence abroad in basically the next number of not just like days and weeks, but months and years is the behavior of these people when they are actually in country. Now, over the past number of months, I've obviously have a number of acquaintances, friends, you know, professional contacts who basically left Russia at basically some point in February, March. Like once the war began, it became clear that they needed to find a different life elsewhere. So those are people who were motivated, who left, you know, seven, eight months ago, were motivated by basically opposition to the war in general. The way these people, the people who are leaving now, these are people who are motivated by, in a sense, the desire not to participate in the war in Ukraine. And obviously the people who have left understand if things were going well, they would not be called upon. So things are going poorly. That's why, you know, people ostensibly like myself, 40 years old, have never served in the military, don't have any, you know, military training, these are the people who are being asked to suddenly go to the front lines. So we have, so in terms of the capabilities, which we'll talk of these people, which we'll talk about in a second, we're also getting many more reports of uh, these Russians who are basically faced with the choice of meeting the business end of an artillery strike or going to a nearby country, going to the nearby country, and in fact, not behaving very politely as guests in somebody else's country. And the number of just, messages that I've seen, um, you know, videos that I've seen, et cetera, of basically Russians going to Armenia, to Georgia, to Kazakhstan, 
and coming with the attitude of this is just an extended spring break and they expect people to uh, basically roll out the red carpet for them that's going to be something um, to observe in the coming weeks months and years because in armenia a lot of armenians are upset that russia did not come to their aid over the last number of years when it came to their conflict with azerbaijan in georgia obviously people are still still furious about the fact that russia invaded them uh, less than 15 years ago and still occupies two provinces that they claim as part of their own country and over the last number of years anytime russia and kazakhstan have had difficulties uh the russians have threatened kazakh sovereignty and territorial integrity so the the good nature of the people in armenia in georgia in kazakhstan everything has an expiration date we'll see how long basically these people um, are going to be in these countries we'll see if basically between let's say the three, four, five hundred thousand people who left at the beginning of the conflict, if let's say another quarter million, half million joined them now, whether we might have various kinds of uh, diasporas abroad. And what happens if and when those people want to come back to Russia? And basically the question of how you reintegrate society is, what did you do during the war? Did you fight in Ukraine? Did you avoid service in Ukraine? Were you abroad the whole time? So those social politics inside Russia and beyond Russia is going to help dominate um, basically how Russia interacts with itself and with other countries for a number of years uh, going forward. Um, on the, uh, also on the note of people who are not relocating uh, to Georgia or Azerbaijan or, where, or Georgia, Armenia or wherever, um, the mobilization was uh, announced less than a week ago. And already as of today, there are basically numerous videos being published uh, of basically Russian, basically newly mobilized people uh, being killed uh, in action, as well as being captured. So just to think about like how had your fast must spin, you're having a normal day and in less than a week, you are a prisoner of war in a country that you had no intention of going to. That's going to basically increase in uh, frequency over the next coming days, uh, because it's clear that, you know, even as the Russian government through President Putin and through the, uh, the Minister of Defense, Sergei Shoigu, uh, said that people were going to get, obviously they're only looking for people who already had military training, so already knew basically what to do, even if a little rusty. So many people who have been mobilized without any military training um, are not even getting the two weeks of training uh, that they were promised. They're going basically straight from their hometown, their home village, to basically a processing center to basically a base uh, close to the border inside Russia and directly to the front in a span of maybe four days. So that's basically the people who are being sent um, straight into the meat grinder. Yeah, that, that's pretty amazing because I when, when the mobilization was announced, I, I think most of us probably had the expectation of they will get like the minimum training required and, and just get them to the front, right? Well, it seems like no training is required. You know, the, the time it takes to get them to the front is almost literally how long it takes to put them on a train, get them there and get them off. They're literally throwing bodies at the problem at this point. Yeah. So, you know, the old adage, you know, mass creates a, a you know, quality of its own or quantity creates a quality of its own. It could very well be that there are that the way they've divided up, you know, these uh, these mobilized people is some of these people are just sent to just slow down basically Ukrainian advance, just hand them a weapon. If they know what to do, great. If not, they're not there to do very much in any case. 
but we'll see. We'll, we'll see whether any mobilized people get any additional training to at least be minimally useful. This is the thing that we've been talking about over the, you know, the past couple of episodes is just having a mobilization doesn't solve logistics problems. Just having mobilization doesn't solve morale problems. It doesn't solve the motivation problem. It doesn't solve any of the actual problems that Russia is facing, but it will slow down the Ukrainians if through mass alone. And it looks to be that Russia was as cynical as we had thought. So we aim for the bottom and we got it. Yeah. And to that whole, you know, quantity has a quality all of its own. That's been a, a topic of discussion on some of the mill Twitter uh, feeds that I follow, you know, of at, at what point is that no longer true? A, a minimum, I think there's even a difference between a minimally trained infantryman and a zero trained infantryman to a point where any quantity is, is almost diminishing returns. Like if they're dying faster than you can put them on the trains to slow, slow down the opponent's advance, what is your quantity buying you at that point? I don't know. Really at, at this point, I mean, the most cynical thing that just like flashed my mind is maybe they anticipate that people will surrender in such numbers that that will slow down the Ukrainian advance by having to process, by having to basically hold on to and process uh, just Russian prisoners of war. It's a bold move, Cotton. See how it plays out. Bless. Um, uh, all right. So we also talked about last week that the, along with the mobilization, there was the announcement for those referenda in some of the occupied territories, which have been ongoing. So uh, so how, how has the get out the vote gone for the, uh, the Russian presence in those territories? Uh, the get out the vote campaign didn't matter from the get go, but at least they, uh, they went through the exercise. The, the exercise, the referenda itself, obviously the, the results were going to be, um, decided in advance in terms of not just enthusi enthusiastically pro, but super enthusiastically pro. So I saw the results for three of the four, um, Russian occupied territories that were, you know, given the choice of basically leaving Ukraine and going to Russia and the results were. Uh, 97, I think 0.47 in favor, 97.74% in favor, and then 97.77% in favor. So I think only 0.44 was missing. So all of these people, so like these votes were obviously not meant for international legitimacy. They're not meant to see what people wanted. Uh, these are only meant to provide basically the first step in what Russia is going to present, um, ostensibly perhaps even this Friday on basically listening to the voices of the people under occupation, under the gun, um, that they wanna leave Ukraine and the danger that that represents in order to come into the Russian Federation. Uh, Putin will be addressing the Russian uh, parliament on Friday and ostensibly at that time, he's going to announce, um, I'm sure to rapturous applause, that uh, the Russian Federation is growing once again uh, much like uh, Crimea. There's a uh, reporting today that uh, Dmitry Rogozin, who uh, is most famous perhaps around the world for uh, getting into endless Twitter beefs with uh, just about anyone, plus like Elon Musk, um, but also just running Roscosmos, which is Russia's space agency into the ground, um, that he's going to be named as basically the federal plenipotentiary. I'm not sure how to pronounce that word, even though I am 40 years old. Um, but basically the, the Russian uh, federal viceroy uh, to these occupied areas, including Crimea. And in that regard, that's what Russia is basically going to take. In fact, this next step of the conflict itself. 
they are losing on the battlefield to the Ukrainians. So therefore, uh, you know, dealing with the Ukrainians is not something that's going to happen, not least because the Ukrainians have one clear uh, sort of precondition, which is Russia leaves its territory. Russia can't do that. So they're going to try and reframe this conflict as Russia versus NATO, Russia versus the West. And by taking these areas into the Russian Federation, what we've had in terms of the last basically two weeks has been nonstop signaling and chatter from Russian federal officials that um, the threats to Russian territory are um, going to basically be met with nuclear weapons. So what Russia can't achieve on the battlefield, they're going to try and achieve by creating, um, you know, uh, fear and um, other sorts of bad things uh, within Western capitals in order to reduce the resolve of those capitals and to reduce the support of the larger West to uh, Ukraine. We've also seen in response to that, um, Jens Stoltenberg, Secretary General of NATO, President Biden, quite literally every um, Western leader saying that these referenda make no difference, they have no legitimacy, and that Russia's um, needs to leave and that the United States and other such countries are going to continue their support to Ukraine uh, no matter what. And just today in the latest um, bill to fund the US government uh, through December 16, it includes $12.3 billion for Ukraine, 3 billion for the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative, 1.5 billion for replenishing US stocks, 540 million for munitions, 2.8 billion for military support in Europe. So obviously US forces in Europe as well as, you know, um, making sure that European militaries are not left um, unprepared for what Russia might do next, and four and a half billion for um, economic assistance assistance to Ukraine. So Russia is trying to threaten the West. The West is not backing down, um, and basically we're going to hear a lot more about nuclear weapons. Um, and maybe in the next episode we can sort of assess uh, how serious that is. But that's basically not um, not anything that seems to be dissuading a Western uh, support for Ukraine, at least in the short term. Yeah, we'll definitely have to revisit once Putin actually does address the Russian parliament, you know, what he says and what the implications of that are in terms of, you know, forced deployments on both sides, potential for escalation and all that stuff. And uh, see if see uh, see if our Russian talk shows can go get even crazier than they are already after that discussion. Um, before we get to the, the last point, I did want to kind of right inside, uh, you know, bearing the lead, if you will, after the announcement of mobilization, we just missed this now, this particular news nugget, I think by a few hours when we recorded the last episode, but shortly following the mobilization announcement, uh, it was also announced quietly um, that uh, a number of the prisoner, Ukrainian prisoners of war who were captured inside Mariupol, specifically in the, I hope I say this right, the Azovstal steel plant, which was really the last bastion of resistance in that city um, for, for a, a remarkably long time until, um, you know, they, they just didn't have any way to resist anymore. So they had to surrender. A lot of those prisoners were sent, were released. Um, some of the leaders were sent to Turkey to basically cool their heels for the duration of the conflict. But the one, the point was very interesting that they were released because the, uh, the Azov forces specifically have been, you know, had the Putin's been beating the drum that these are the, the most Nazi of the Nazis there. Um, but also the Russians got something in return for this prison release. Um, you want to kind of paint paint that whole picture of, of what that was and how, how that exchange played out for both countries. So this so just to you know refresh our minds, if we can think all the way back to last week 
uh, when Russia was dealing with the uh, effects of the successful Ukrainian counteroffensive across uh, Kharkiv province, uh, Oblast. That's at the moment in which Russian forces um, had been defeated on the battlefield uh, and Russian forces were, you know, were making their way back across the border or further, um, further east towards safety with any vehicle that would work, um, stealing civilian clothes along the way, shedding all the military equipment they had in order to get out quick. So at this moment in which Russian forces are have turned tail and have started running, that's in essence when we get this um, this prisoner exchange. And what did the Russians get in return? The Russians send, uh, I think it was about 215 people, including a number of uh, foreign citizens who had been serving you know, with Ukrainian armed forces, these Azov people who had been demonized to no end in Russian media, 55 uh, Russian POWs go in the opposite direction, like back into Russia. Um, no fanfare for those people, uh, including Viktor Medvedchuk, uh, who we talked about um, many months ago when he was ostensibly um, going to be in case Russia had won its original war of taking all of Ukraine in three days. He was likely going to be the the pro-Russian proxy leader installed or the person that Russia would have, um, you know, put forward as as the man they want to represent their interests. Um, he is the, uh, I think, as I forget whether I didn't have this written down. He's either the godfather to, no, so Putin is the godfather to uh, one of his daughters, I believe. So they share not just like a professional connection in terms of the destruction of Ukraine, but also a personal connection through their children. Um, and this is the guy that when the Ukrainian, at the beginning of the war, um, his wife fled the country, he went into hiding. And when the Ukrainians caught him, this was going to be, uh, you know, it was obviously a personal humiliation for Putin that not only was his war going poorly, but that his friends uh, were being captured as well. So when we then fast forward to the prisoner exchange, the very people that the Russians blame for everything bad happening to Russian forces are being exchanged for Putin's friend. And that was in essence, one of the parts of the Russian nationalist opposition to Putin in terms of his inability to wage Russia's war correctly. And that in combination with being humiliated, you know, by various world leaders at the Sh Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting in Samarkand, that that combination of things, not, we can't overdetermine it saying one thing was more important than the next, but that was definitely part of it. And so Putin having to, uh, you know, basically giving over the crown jewels in terms of prisoners of war in order to get his friend back, that definitely did not do wonders for him on Russian social media. And so we, uh, you know, even the prisoner of war exchange doesn't doesn't go well for the Russian leader. Yeah, that, and and I think uh, we were talking about before we started recording some of the possible second second order effects from that is, you know, if the if the intent was to put the leaders in Turkey to sort of get them away from any being used for any sort of, you know, messaging internally inside of Ukraine, uh, it's a it's a curious take on on the value they place on personal leadership, which I'm sure if if it were you know. Putin, he would think he's the only one who matters. And so you want to, you know, that type of highly personal directed leadership would um, might might take away a, a powerful informational tool. But as we've been seeing, you know, 
most of the soldiers went back. Right. And, and in and of themselves, that's been a huge messaging tool because you have these folks who you thought, you know, didn't know if they were dead or alive, who resisted to the very last. Now they're back, right. You get your, you get your heroes back, but also um, very visible um, evidence on their bodies of how they were treated during captivity. So uh, if, if they thought that that was a messaging coup to, to release those people somehow, again, um, don't understand really the decision making going into it because you you've sort of self-owned on on revealing your own treatment of prisoners of war um, and very interesting messaging dichotomy as well, because the Ukrainian government has noted to to encourage Russian soldiers to surrender. They've been very specific about we'll you know, we'll treat you well. Um, we won't tell the Russians how you surrendered, whether it was like you came to our lines or if you if you fought to the last bullet um, and we won't send you back if you don't want to go. Right. Pretty, pretty stark contrast in in treatment of prisoners of war. All right. So last piece here before we wrap up, um, I think it was it was either late last night into this morning. There were as I'm looking at the Associated Press news story, which is quite not not rendering a verdict in how it characterizes it. But it's uh, talks about a series of unusual leaks on two of the natural gas pipelines, the Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2 that were recently uh, shut off. Well, Nord Stream 2 was never active, but Nord Stream 1 was recently shut off by Russia in response to uh, the sanctions regime. And uh, also reports that there were um, explosions registered by seismologists in some of the Scandinavian countries near those pipelines. Um, so what, uh, what, do we, what do we think is going on there? So it could be, you know, just accidents, bad luck. Uh, there were several explosions uh, that were picked up by the seismographs. And even within a couple hours, uh, both the Swedish and um, Danish uh, prime ministers, like really at the at the head of government, uh, said things to the effect of, uh, it's hard to believe this is anything other than sabotage. And they were treating it as if it were um, an attack by, you know, Russian submarine forces onto these pipelines. Uh, with the idea being, if Europe doesn't want to, you know, have this gas because they don't want to pay for it because of, uh, you know, they want to uh, make the Russian federal budget hurt, then uh, Russia's parting gift uh, for these pipelines is to create an ecological disaster. Now, from first from first glance, and this is like so far, I, uh, you know, out of my range of experience, um, but it looks like the what is created is by having these explosions on these pipelines. It creates these gas plumes, which creates large enough um basically pools on the surface of the water. I don't know, like off the top of my head, um, whether this is going to be any better or worse than let's say an oil spill when it's natural gas. Um, but these pictures look absolutely insane. So it could very well be that Russia is gifting the Baltic Sea an ecological disaster for um, you know the next couple days, weeks, months, years, uh, who knows. Um, but it also goes to show that if Russia is not able to get what it wants through uh, diplomacy, it's going to do it through violence and extremely unconventional means. Um, so obviously I imagine over the next couple days, they're gonna try and figure out what's happened. They're going to probably ask the Russians to cut off the gas altogether. And um, that's more or less what we have. Yeah, I, I didn't have eco-terrorism on my war in Ukraine bingo card, but. Uh, we may need to add some some new boxes or columns to that thing as uh, as things develop. All right, you've all thank you very much for your time. Got a lot of quick hits here, but uh, thanks to our audience again for listening in. And as always, we will stay on top of events and get these things out 
as quickly as we can as things developed. Yuval, we'll see you later for the next one. Cheers.